it was an ambitious attempt to make legitimate wrestling cool and had to be saved by silly gimmicks. Today, we talk about the 1915 International Tournament. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. Here we are back at it again. You might have heard my hands clap. I don't know why I'm being so animated. We are here. You are listening to us. You downloaded it. You're listening on your uh, your Wi-Fi, maybe plugged into your computer. I like to think you're so dedicated. You're burning your, your data listening to us because you love the show so much. What am I talking about? Who am I? My name is Nick Gossert. I am a pro wrestling promoter, a booker, occasionally a ring announcer, used to be a referee, and I am here with the jewels to my Vincent for the uh, Pulp Fiction fans. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you, man? Better than a Royale of cheese that made it through customs, old chap. Capital to see you today, and the hand movements are because we are excited, man. We are absolutely excited. A little, uh, little, little, little uh, inside thing. We've been waiting two hours to record this. We are still outside a construction site. It, you might hear some beeps, some boops, some backing up of large vehicles, but. More importantly, you are going to hear the crazy story that we are going to tell you today. And this one is absolutely bananas. It is a crazy story uh, orchestrated by a crazy man. There are some mysteries. There is some intrigue. I think you are going to love hearing about it as much as I loved putting it together. And speaking of which... There are going to be other opinions on this subject for those who have deep-dived into the history of pro wrestling. Some of you are going to say, oh, I, I read this book and they put more emphasis on this. And some people will say, I, I thought wrestling was already this way and this really didn't amount to much. And you know what? You may be right in some ways. You might read one person's interpretation and not read the articles. You might read the articles without this person's interpretation. But because there is no definitive history of pro wrestling, aside from what we are doing today, am I right, buddy? That's right, man. It's an oral tradition passed down orally through generations by word of mouth. And the, the you know, the key thing with something like that is it's going to change over time. It's a game of telephone. Things were, the, the, the amount of tangible physical evidence that remains other than a bunch of newspaper clippings and really, really small amount of memorabilia, it's, it, it's piecing to, it's like archaeology, man, but like verbal pro wrestling history archaeology. So man, if you got a problem with it, like I don't know, like fight start us. your own podcast or something. Or fight us. That's always the solution I have is you can track us down and challenge us to a uh, to, to a fist fight. We're always fine with that. You hear me, stepdad? Anyway. But yeah, they're they're this is a, a fun subject to dig through because we're still back in the day when pro wrestling was covered as a legitimate sport by the sports writer of the paper who may not have been in the know or not known how to spot a worked match or they assumed everything was a worked match or maybe they simply didn't care because they want to watch a baseball game instead and they got stuck covering wrestling and there were no shoot interviews there were no autobiographies so a lot of it is conjecture based upon objective reporting it's a crazy uh, thing. We try to put it together the best we can. And what are we putting together today? We are putting together the 1915 Greco-Roman International Tournament that was held at the Manhattan Opera House. There was a spring tournament and there was a fall tournament. And this 
just it's just such a weird slice of wrestling time at this that is such a weird moment and some people might put more emphasis about this being a game changer but i feel like it was just a great example of where wrestling was at that day and it was put together by a man named sam rackman his first step into the world of pro wrestling in the united states was a large and insanely ambitious one Sure, according to some records, he had promoted Greco-Roman tournaments in Europe where, the, where that was still the style du jour and drew decent numbers, but now he was in America and he went with it all or nothing for Greco-Roman wrestling in a tournament in the spring-slash-summer of 1915 at the Manhattan Opera House. And if you want to see just how ambitious this was, Google search the Manhattan Opera House and take a look at the enormous venue with three balconies, all with many chairs that needed to be filled. That's a crazy uh, uh, you know, thing to try to do even in the days of television and pay-per-views. So he was a money mark. He might be the first documented money mark we've come across here on the Hippodrome Express. But it's interesting how he thought he could just swing an audience to fill such an ambitious venue. You don't just start at Staples Center, darling. That's pretty. That's pretty robust uh, ambition. And I, yeah, I, I tried finding more about this man. I tried to find some sort of uh, biography on him. I tried to even hit up some of the, my fellow wrestling historians in Europe that I interact with via the old Twitter machine. And this guy literally seems to have come out of nowhere. There are no records on him. There's no information on him. Maybe somewhere in a, a French vault, there is a bunch of articles from the newspaper that will prove me wrong. But this guy just kind of came out of nowhere in the true carny fashion and came out swinging with a big crazy plan and it was risky it was a big risk because wrestling wasn't exactly in its best place at the time commercially speaking the stars of the late 1800s and early 1900s were all either retired old or dead frank gotch had retired yet again and this time it seemed for good Hackenschmidt had been sent packing back to Europe, a broken man who couldn't uh, draw a dollar and had no intention of competing at a high level. And there were also accusations of hippodroming at the highest level whenever his match against Frank Gotch was mentioned. And we've talked about that match many times. Kind of the emotional and business uh, lesson from it is the biggest match that could have been put together in the day killed legitimate pro wrestling as a front page big drawing legitimate sport it wasn't always legitimate even in those days but in many instances it was there were no athletic commissions so lots of cheating but it was kind of killed dead after that there were still draws there were still some towns that could draw big numbers but there weren't new stars at that time and the old stars were either out of the game or had a lot of stink on them with accusations of hippodroming. And yes, there were new stars slowly being built up in the world of catch-as-catch-can wrestling, and there were markets that still drew, but again, the exciting, high-paced, almost always worked style of catch wrestling had long since replaced Greco-Roman wrestling and its hours-long snooze-fest style as what sporting fans wanted to watch. Because how do you feel? Like, what would you rather watch? Like a like a two-hour Greco-Roman uh, stall fest or a worked catch-as-catch-can match? 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's no contest as far as what's more aesthetically pleasing, what's more fun to watch, what's more visually interesting. Uh, Greco is just a physical slugfest of upper body, arm and shoulder and body locks trying to, to tip your opponent over. You can't use your legs, you can't trip, you can't go to the lower body. So it's a very limited style. And on the outside, looking at it to the uneducated eye, it looks pretty boring because it, it's very much fighting for grips. And so it kind of looks like you're battling to hug. Whereas catches catch can is submissions where you can catch any submission you can on the entire body from an ankle lock to a chokehold. And it, it opens up the playbook a lot more and opens up the artistry a lot more and it opens up the hippodromes a lot more because there's a lot more ways you can work a submission match. And you can also keep it more entertaining for the ticket buyers even if it's not legitimate. People will turn a blind eye to a lot of things unless they have money riding on it so long as it's entertaining. And when you would have matches where a catch as catch can specialist would come out against another catch wrestler or a Greco-Roman guy, much like the gotch lurge match we talked about last time, so long as you give me you know, two falls of entertainment so I feel like I got my ticket price worth, cool, I'm going home happy so long as it looked close enough to a real fight, which is what they wanted at the time. So I'm interested as to the intentions of why he would attempt this first big swing at the fences in such a large venue with such a unpopular style at the time. Well, first off, it's what Rockman knew best, and Greco-Roman still held a level of old-world respectability boosted by the modern Olympic Games. It seemed removed from the carny bullshit of modern catch wrestling, and New York City was the perfect place, having a long history of Greco-Roman wrestling from the days of William Muldoon and nightly matches at Henry Hill's Tavern. It seemed to many a return to the respectable, sporting style that the old timers wanted to see and that the kids growing up heard about it from those old timers. Yeah, sounds like the state of the business today, old chap, a hundred years later. Yeah, it was it was just a situation where there was enough nostalgia, there was enough interest. There was also a, a lot of people who wanted to see wrestling as a legitimate sport again, as opposed to, you know, carny, silliness, worked matches, high flying, you know, all that stuff. So there was a nostalgia ticket, a throwback ticket, a, you know, like the Olympic style ticket that could be sold constantly, that could be sold and sold in big numbers. And Another thing, there was a big vacancy at the top of the food chain. Frank Gotch hadn't competed since 1913, and while there were many proposed matches, he seemed disinterested in them, and others were starting to openly lay claim to the title that they never won, like Stanislav Zabisco was doing. Uh, Rockman saw this epic tournament as the opportunity to crown a champion on a huge, legitimate stage. I think that's a, a very ambitious goal. I like where this guy's head's at. I like how he popped out of nowhere, swung for the fences, and he's absolutely right. At the time, Catches Catch Can kind of had the, oh, that's a Hippodrome connotation to it, where Greco's reputation had been somewhat reestablished and, and sort of re-elevated through Olympics, you know, through Olympic competition and the association there. So that... that and with that being his sort of like old country thing that he knows well, it makes sense that he would go that route. 
And he also had another, because like I said, a lot of this comes together as the right time, the right place, and also the right people, because Rockman benefited from the top European Greco-Roman men fleeing the dangers of World War I and coming to America. And as a promoter myself, I appreciate taking advantage of a bunch of stars you don't have to pay a lot of transportation money to book. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that is that is quite the pitch when it's like, all right, since we don't have to worry about trans, what are we going to get this guy for just on his payday? Yeah, because this, once again, it's just like everything lined up for this guy because all these huge Greco-Roman stars from from Russia, from Germany, from, wow. from France, from everywhere, were just trying to get the fuck out of Europe at the time, and New York City was a great place to be, so he had all the talent in the world to put together a tournament with well, that's really, that's, that is a great utilization of the opportunity presented to you because, yeah, it's a perfect storm. You have, you know, this bastion of, of New York as an international safe haven collecting all this talent. Why, why not, man? And with all this talent put together, there were still favorites. The clear favorites, either through marketing, skill, or both, were Alexander Aberg, who we discussed a lot in the previous episodes about Jordan uh, Lurich, and Lalit Zabisco, Stanislaus's younger brother. Stanislaus had returned to Europe, so he was not available. So Aberg and Lodic both laid claim to the Greco-Roman championship that neither had actually won. As we have discussed many times over, this is an old-time pro wrestling 101 move, claiming a title that you never won and didn't exist until you announced it on the poster. Well, now they have the opportunity to back that thing up in the ring because they both are going to have a chance to vie for that championship in legitimate tournament competition. Or so we think! And the tournament was scheduled to run from May 19, 1915 to the end of June. Triple elimination, which was not universally enforced, with some wrestlers being eliminated after one or two losses. The top stars of Europe were all announced as the champions of their country, which was almost universally not true. But try fact-checking that in 1915. All these you know, European and exotic stars coming to the U.S. and being presented as the champion of their country. It feels a lot like blood sport with the various international characters. Yeah, and maybe a little bit of the IBJJF uh, ability to run a tournament sprinkled in there, man. That's crazy. Everybody's a champion from their country. Everything's going to go three falls unless we don't feel like it. And it's just madness, man, to run a tournament that long in, and again, we're talking about a massive venue and running a tournament night after night, week after week. You're not trying to just draw a single house, man. You are counting on being able to draw, like, you know, New York Yankees-esque numbers. And they did fairly well, because keep in mind, ticket prices ran from 25 cents to two whole dollars. And the tournament ran every night, Wednesday through Saturday. So that's a lot of tickets to sell for five or six weeks. And do keep in mind, this is the pre-radio days, the pre-internet days, the pre, you know, for the most part, movie house days. So people needed things to do. So this, just the novelty alone, would draw a lot of, uh, of ticket buyers. And one thing I thought was rather funny for you know, our, our modern perspective is the wrestlers at first were going to wear jerseys or sweaters to avoid offending and scandalizing any women who would attend this classy European-style tournament. And instead, it was decided that they would wear singlets that covered the nipples, 
oh, how standards have changed since then. Well, man, that would have been cool if they had the jackets, because then we would have got a little judo action going, and maybe a little bit of the old, uh, what was it, line? It's like, yes, we would actually have almost a Cumberland-style uh, matches out of that when you would have those grips. Same thing with the original collar and elbow. A uh, lot of opportunities there, so I feel like that might have been part of the, uh, the, the, the decision. And how well did it do attendance-wise? Well, nearly every night of the first few weeks drew 6,000 people, wow. tickets in hand, and ready to watch some legitimate wrestling. The press treated it as legitimate, and for the most part, it was. They did have vaudeville acts warming up the crowd before the wrestlers took to the stage. Notice I say stage, not ring. In old-timey fashion, the matches took place on the stage of the opera house with a piece of carpet for padding. This became dangerous when wrestlers get close to the edge of the stage and potentially or actually fall 10 feet to the floor. That's something we've heard about going back to the William Muldoon days, when instead of a, 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 a ring, it's just on a stage like it's a band playing. Yeah, and, and let me tell you something. It gets dangerous a lot closer to the middle of that thing than the edge. It, it's dangerous before that. You are rustling on a, on a stage surface, the wrong angle on a takedown, and whatever hits, it's going to break because nothing hits harder than the ground. And that's why you can't really have a truly competitive and full rules wrestling match on a hard surface. Like, imagine getting taken down with a German suplex on the concrete. You're going to break people's bodies, and the stage is not much softer, man. Oh, absolutely. I mean, this is a probably a hard wooden uh, you know, floor with just a little bit of, uh, you know, of carpet on top of it. This is not comfortable to get tossed on no matter what. And as we move into the tournament, one thing I do want to clarify is that we're not going to linger on the matches themselves. Otherwise, this would be a 10-hour recording, and we are simply not sober enough to be up for that. Just keep in mind that the tournament was packed with the most famous and most skilled wrestlers of every country, from Greece to Turkey to Germany to Russia to Mongolia. It truly was an international superstar tournament. I wonder how those different sub-styles of grappling translated to a unified rule set here, and if there were some surprises in you know that were unplanned by the booking committee or the you know by the people putting this thing together because you got to think like no matter what even if it's a truly neutral competition you always have the people as a business owner that would be better for your business if they win so i i just i can't even imagine what the potential opening of so many unforeseen variables of having a tournament with this many people you've never seen these guys turkey you know uh the styles are so different around the world i can only imagine the individual upsets and the individual oh shit moments that came out of this thing and that is something we talk about a lot uh, in our episodes is there's two ways to control the outcome give a guy easy matches so he can blow through it or just make out and out hippodromes make worked matches those are the two ways to do it and 
Because that's the other way, is another concern, is how do you keep people interested in a tournament that is this goddamn long, especially when it comes right down to it, Greco-Roman can be boring as hell to watch. The traditional way is to do things in, a, in wrestling to set up a baby face for the crowd to root for and a heel for them to boo. And he clearly had Alexander Aberg and Bolalad Zabisco picked for those roles. But how do you guarantee the two meet in the finals? Again, A, give the people you want to push the easiest opponents, and B, a smattering of Hippodromes! And while I feel that most matches were legit in this tournament, there were plenty of matches that lasted mere minutes or had dramatic non-finishes. It also doesn't help that, even though the United States wouldn't enter World War I for two more years, the press presented wrestlers from central power countries like Germany, Austria-Hungary, and the Ottoman Empire as almost orcish monsters, coming to defile the goodness of the West, and of course any European-facing Americans, like when Dr. Benjamin Roller was added into the tournament two weeks in for some reason, they were all described by the most delightful slurs of the time. And Roller infused some fresh interest in the tournament, being one of Hackenschmidt's trainers, but he was a catch wrestler competing in Greco-Roman rules, so his success was rather limited. Yeah, in a situation like this, you got to imagine that their goal is to have the optimal outcome or as close to the optimal outcome for the tournament as possible with the, the smallest amount of interference to make that happen. They want to influence things, stack certain guys so they win, stack certain guys so they lose, hippodrome or put the work in, the fix in if they must, but they want to present this thing as legitimate and every time you try to point shave or cook the books, there's an opening that could be exposed. And so I imagine that every opportunity they could to keep this thing legitimate, they did. And ticket sales did start to fall off due to lack of excitement and lack of interest. I feel like a lot of people came wanting to see these barn burners and instead watched Greco-Roman wrestling instead. And possibly it was due to economic uncertainty as international trade fell off due to the war. And there was also a delay due to the tragic death of Stefan Logler, who died of a heart attack after a night of matches. Rest in peace, good sir. I hope you went out on a victory. That would really throw things off, though. He had a, so he had a heart attack after going through the tournament. because. And keep in mind, guys, there's no you know three three-minute rounds, three five-minute rounds. These were two a fall for a finish, and then you got to go two more falls. These matches could take hours. And so to have several matches in one night, th that guy's body has been pushed past the point of what a human being should probably do to themselves. So at the time, I'm frankly surprised that more people weren't seriously and permanently damaged from competing in a tournament like this that much in such a short, you know, however many weeks that is. You're talking about putting your body through unbelievable grueling conditions over and over again before it's even recovered from the last one. And that's why when you start seeing uh, people competing nightly because they're the draws and actually usually going to draws, that's when I usually assume the fix is in because n no human being can compete for you know these enormous high-level tournaments for like you know three matches in two nights without just kind of falling apart no matter how conditioned you are. Yeah, we're talking about the equivalent of running a marathon or doing a triathlon except you are fighting 
but that level of grueling conditioning and endurance and pushing your body past what is safe and normal to do so, where you're going to need some serious recovery from this thing, and they're simply not getting it. They're going again later that night. They're going the next night. They're going the next week. And I'm surprised that the attrition didn't just break down the majority of the roster here. And, you know, I assume it probably did. Um, you know, I mean, this was like a triple elimination, many weeks, so much going on, weird rules. Sometimes things would be a draw. Sometimes things went real quick, which makes me uh, think they were, they were fixes. And in the end, the finals of the tournament ended in the worst way possible, a long draw. On June 26th, in front of a packed house, because ticket sales had upticked as it reached its conclusion, people decided it was time to check back in and see how things are going. Aber and Zabisco, of course, they were the uh, two in the uh, finals, wrestled to a three-hour, 40-minute draw after <sighs> Zabisco collapsed and couldn't continue. The papers couldn't even report on it the next day because they had to have their stories turned in for print over an hour before the match even finished. Again, this is one of the biggest risks when you make and build up a legitimate match because... Again, the people who've been following in the paper had no idea who won. It kind of lost its press luster. People who had been watching this for months and months and months watch a three-plus-hour draw when somebody just collapses and can't continue. Well, at least we know it wasn't a hippodrome. Oh, boy, and if it was, they worked way too gosh darn hard for it. And this wasn't a situation where they could, you know, put it together the next week or the next month. And they, 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 they wanted to do the rematch in the same venue, didn't work out. But a month of building and work and wrestling and all for a non-finish with no capacity for a follow-up the next night... This was a tough hole to dig themselves out of because the rematch was set to happen right before the fall tournament. So it was months later on October 25th, 1915. He ended up having to do it in uh, you know, Madison Square Garden. And Aberg met Zabisco for $1,000 and the Greco-Roman Championship of the World. Ten-minute rounds, one-minute rest between them clearly trying to avoid another three-hour train wreck. It was still a snooze fest for the first six rounds, with neither wrestler interested in being aggressive and making attacks, and it wasn't until the seventh that Zabisco managed to throw Aber without a pin, then Aber managed to grab a head and neck chancery and throw Zabisco onto his shoulders, even though it was so quick that the ref almost missed it, and even most of the audience missed it, and did not react to the end of the match, and the ref had to explain it to the announcer. Aber was the world champ, and a thousand dollars richer, but when you have a weird finish like that after so much buildup, it, again, it sucks the emotion out of the win. It sucks the emotion out of the finish. It creates a, oh, that was weird, I guess we go home now energy, which is not what anybody wants. Yeah, it's one of the uh, risks of running legitimate competition is having a indecisive or unsatisfying finish. You know, uh, I think about like when Randy Couture got his eyelid, his eyelid cut open. At right Vader Belfort, yeah, where yeah. Vader threw that little short hook, it just cut his eyelid pretty much clean off with the uh, glove friction. And even though it was technically a win and a title change. It was just a. It, it wasn't seen as legitimate. It wasn't seen as exciting, and it wasn't seen as a very good main event 
for a pay-per-view, no matter whose fault it was not. Yeah, it was not a satisfying outcome to something that had been so built and anticipated. It was maybe 30 seconds into the fight, and it was just a, basically a scrape gone wrong. And that's that's what you risk when you have these legitimate competitions, because sometimes the coin lands on its side, man, and you end up in a draw. It, I think that it's it, it was poor execution in the moment that they didn't come up with a decisive victory in that initial tie and you could make an argument that then they're building to this rematch here at madison square garden but then once again if the outcome is unsatisfying you are going to kill your own audience man and that was pretty much what happened because the big problem now was aber was the world champion he was the greco-roman world champ he he wanted in the same building where muldoon won his title But the problem was, nobody cared. Nobody gave a shit about this at this point. Um, You know, with the rise of younger catch wrestling stars like Charlie Cutter, Ed Strangler-Lewis, and of course, Joe Stetcher, they had taken over the sport of wrestling in that year. Nobody really cared about an Estonian-Russian beating a pole for the Greco-Roman Championship when Stetcher was turning into the face of wrestling at the time and trying to get Frank Gotch to come out of retirement for a big-money super match. Sure, Aber tried to also challenge Gotch, calling him second-rate and claiming that he, Lurich, Wallach Zabisco, were the real best wrestlers in the world, but this was like the old-timers criticizing rock and roll back in the 60s. The cool kids simply didn't care what they were saying. But hot draw or not, Sam Rackman was set to start his fall tournament and try again. And yeah, this put them in a tough spot because all that effort, all that you know, all, all those matches, all that investment. And in the end, you're like, we have a world champion. And everybody goes, cool story, bro. We're going to go watch these uh, awesome matches and read the articles about uh, these these crazy catch matches and the guys coming up uh, as the new stars and challenging gosh, and maybe it'll come together. Holy crap. But but I'm, I'm the champion. Yeah, yeah, we, we heard you, buddy. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem when you get everyone's attention and then you shit the bed on the finish. They had built the tournament to rehab the image of Greco as an entire wrestling sport and genre. And they failed in that. They failed twice. And what sucks even worse when you really think about it, what originally put that 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 brand of wrestling on the hot seat was the accusation of it being a match that wasn't on the up and up between Gotch and Hackensmith, when it actually was a legitimate match and it was so unsatisfying that people assumed it was a work, and now you have almost the opposite situation where it was clearly not a work, but they still shit the bed. So they just can't get out of their own way, and it doesn't surprise me that they're getting surpassed by the more exciting style now that they lost their opportunity to regain the respect as a legitimate, as the legitimate wrestling style in America. Yeah, I, I, I'm really fascinated by a lot of these guys like like Lurich and Aberg and uh, you know, the Zabisco brothers and these guys who were legitimate, great Greco-Roman wrestlers, great self-promoters, very dignified in the way they carried themselves. They were physical specimens, but they were about 25 years too late for that to mean what it could have meant in the United States. Now they were seen as the old style, the, uh, the the squares, if you will. And the public simply didn't react. There was not the interest from the press, the, 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 the sporting people, to really capitalize this outside of New York City and what Sam Rackman and 
Aberg were saying. So Sam Rackman announced his second tournament and that it would begin in November of 1915. And he also made a decision that could either help, hurt, or somehow do both. He brought on Jack Curley as a partner. Curley was a longtime wrestling and boxing promoter who was responsible for the disastrous second Gotch Hackenschmidt match and faced accusations of shorting Hackenschmidt on most of his pay. The perfect partner to bring in for the round two of, of the tournament, because what better to do than completely shit the bed at the end of the first tournament, run it back, and bring in the shadiest promoter you can find? That sounds like exactly the game plan that'll work. Because while he was a longtime New York promoter, certainly this can be a helpful partner while organizing something on this scale, but Curly was seen as a promoter of staged matches, and the primary draw of the first tournament was its legitimacy, or at least the appearance of legitimacy. And Rockman also announced that the tournament would be mixed matches, with both Greco and catch wrestling being presented. This would hurt the standing of his Greco-Roman stars like Aberg, because catch was a hell of a lot more fun to watch, and the submissions made it look even more dangerous, but I don't think that was something that occurred to this old world promoter. He was just trying to get the cool thing that the kids are into involved, hoping to sell more tickets. That's right, man, because at the end of the day, it's about being a draw, darling. And if that's what the hot shit that the kids are into, then that's what you're going to put out on the field, darling. The tournament kicked off November 9th, with tickets again being between $0.25 cents and $2, and Dr. Benjamin Roller came out of retirement since catch rules were in play. Charlie Cutter also threw his hat in the ring, and very quickly the long, boring Greco-Roman draws gave way to more entertaining works. The promoters were again pushing Aberg and Zabisco, who were honestly the best Greco-Roman wrestlers in the tournament, but who the heck wanted to pay to see a third snooze fest between these two men? The draw had been burnt, but they're still pushing this uh, very specific idea they had, but people were more interested in watching the catch matches. I wonder what the the thought process is there that they are trying to establish Greco as the superior style or they don't have a catch star that they feel confident can carry the brand and be the champion of the tournament. I don't really understand the logic there. I feel like it was a combination of just that old world Greco-Roman prestige and thinking and just kind of the assumption that, you know, this is this is the prestigious way of doing things. This is the 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 sporting way of doing things and also not having good connections with a lot of the catch stars because they saw themselves in competition with those uh, those young catch stars that were you know catching fire and they uh, you know they, they didn't have a way to challenge them without actually putting a match together which would have been a whole different thing which would have been a co-producing nightmare so they're trying to make their product superior without actually having to uh, prove their superiority it sounds like the WWF WCW buyout of 2000 when they, when they brought the whole second string in to try to prove the brand superiority. I don't understand what the, this is. Poor, poor, poorly done. Nay, I say that is that is bad booking. 
And Rockman did understand that both his long-term plans as well as the draw to this tournament were getting shot to hell by the rise of Joe Stetcher as the star of wrestling. He was kind of stepping to that point of almost being the, the new Frank Gotch. People wanted to uh, see him. They saw him as the legitimate top guy. No one was caring about this uh, you know, Greco-Roman tournament off in New York when you can see exciting catch wrestling matches in Chicago, in Kansas City, in places like that. So of course, he issued a $20,000 challenge for Stetcher to face whomever won the tournament. Two out of three falls, one Greco-Roman, one Catch-as-Catch-Can, and a third determined by a coin toss. Rockman also created some wrestling drama by making a feud between referee and former lightweight champ George Bothner and wrestler Ivan Lenau, which included the competitor punching the ref after a DQ, but the audience didn't seem to give a shit about any of it anyway. So he's trying to put pure showbiz pro wrestling uh, to, to make it dramatic, and it's still not really catching on. And they didn't give a shit. It's too bad that he's he's taken it that far for an audience that that's uh, that is that unresponsive. But really, it sounds like a lot of modern internet fans because it's like, oh, it's not traditional enough. You're doing that flippy new shit. Oh, you're doing that old shit. It's a Greco so boring. It's like whatever they do, they're coming across the 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 criticism. So they might as well just you know throw it out there and building a star. They built they built a stature backwards, man. I mean, this is crazy. Well, he was the competition, but trying to get some good heat for their own show, uh, Rockman added 26-year-old Ed Strangler Lewis, who was a hot up-and-comer, but nowhere near the legend he would become one day. Lewis announced his entry by challenging Frank Gotch to meet him at the tournament for the sum of $1,000. I don't know how hard Gotch laughed when he heard that pitiful amount, but I bet it was pretty loud. Weirdly, Lewis, who was born and raised in Wisconsin, was billed as a German when entering the tournament. You know, Frank Gotch at this point was still the measuring stick. He was the guy, you know, people were trying to coax him out of retirement because nobody could be legitimate, nobody could be the man until they beat Frank Gotch, no matter where he was in his career. So it was just standard protocol to call him out to start your career and make your make your name that way. And then he ducked me. The champ didn't want that smoke. He didn't want to come back and face me because I'm the man now. It makes sense, except then everyone does it, and then you guys have to fight it out anyway. Exactly. But the move that really finally brought in the attention of the media and, more importantly, the ticket-buying public was a master stroke of pro wrestling, and it destroyed the last remnants of legitimacy the tournament might have clung to, and I am talking about the masked marvel. On the night of Tuesday, December 7th, a man in a black mask raised hell in the audience close to the stage, claiming he was blackballed from the tournament for being too good. He demanded to be allowed to compete in this tournament. Promoter Sam Rockman came out and calmed him down, telling him he could wrestle on the December 9th show, this drama did exactly what they hoped it would and popped the shrinking crowd back to near capacity for that December 9th date. Some even speculated that Joe Stetcher might be under that mask. Is that pro wrestling or is that pro wrestling? And that it's a perfect example of why it's better to be able to control your narrative, man. This is why... Pro wrestling has lasted this long because you can control the narrative and tell the story you want to tell and take people on these emotional rides and, and make them feel what you want to feel. Of course, 
he's going to get over. Of course that's going to pop the crowd because now they're giving him something different. And what are they giving him? They're giving him a hippodrome. They're giving him a worked circumstance to draw interest and to emphasize the story to build intrigue for the competition. And that's how you got to do that shit, man. And it ended up being a very good start because the masked marble faced off against a standout from the previous tournament, Wilhelm Burner. And after 12 cautious minutes, the masked marble picked Burner up over his head and slammed him so hard that he was KO'd. Burner was dramatically carried backstage, and the masked marble was victorious. Up next for the marble was Finnish wrestler. Sulo Hevapa, I have no idea how to pronounce that name, but I was probably very wrong. And another dramatic grappler who was constantly getting DQ'd for fouls and had previously chased his opponents around with a chair. And the match was similar, with the masked marble getting his Finnish foe up for the finish by picking up <laughs> to the sh to picked him up to his shoulders and putting him down for a pin. He was on fire. He later defeated the 390-pound Pierre Le Colosso with a chancery and arm hold throw at five minutes. The crowd was going wild for this gimmicked work match, and they were surrounded by boring, legitimate wrestling matches between the same men who bored the crowd that spring. So he was like this bright star that actually made the rest of it look even worse by comparison. And that is how you build a babyface, darling. You get a guy over. He's got the foreign menace. He fights the big bully monster heel. He cuts the tight promo. He backs it up. He's a man of the people. He's giving them something they want to see, something new and exciting. This is awesome, man. And moving forward in the tournament on December 14th, the masked marble faced Gjord Lurich, and the two men had an action-packed back and forth, which I assume was totally not planned ahead of time, and ended after the time limit draw led to a demand from the crowd for an overtime round, which Rockman granted. Lurich found himself getting hoisted in the air by his masked foe, who slammed him to the floor. Lurich claimed he had hit his head and was injured, but everyone close to the match clearly saw Lurich tuck his chin and take no head damage. They were clearly confused by the worked angle of the finish. Well, that's unfortunate that that aspect of it uh, was what was harped on because that is such good booking. You got the people up there demanding to get more of the match and you give the people what they want and that feeds into the big signature slam, but you give your established healing out because it was an injury. It's, uh, you know, that's, that's good shit, man. It's too bad that, that, that it got picked apart based on his landing. And finally, he faced one of the big stars, the people who was supposed to be the draw. On the 15th, the Masked Marvel and Vladek Zabisco went to a 20-minute draw. I assume to keep Zabisco strong-looking, since I assume he hated the whole goddamn idea. And the next night, the Marvel faced Alexander Aberg, who at first refused to wrestle any man whose face he hadn't seen. The crowd reacted as you'd expect, and the Marvel agreed to remove his mask, but only if he lost. Aberg practically turned heel that night, trying to grab at the mask and throwing strikes that should have resulted in a DQ. But showbiz is showbiz, baby, and it ended in a draw. And I feel like they were trying to originally build up Aberg as being the honorable guy in that who demanded wrestling be a little more, uh, you know, sportsman-like and not a gimmicked thing. And in the end, they kind of turned on him because they loved the masked marvel. Yeah, you wanted to take away the special thing that they had just gotten. 
they got a masked wrestler that is doing cool shit, and you want to take that away from them. You are putting yourself in the heel position at that point, you know? You can say it's for the respect of pro wrestling or whatever, but at the end of the day, the fans want to see it, man, and you're trying to take it away from the people. And a similar reaction happened in his rematch with Zabisco on the 17th, which was for some reason announced under catch rules. Both men exchanged submissions back and forth with the marble escaping from several toeholds. The match ended just under two hours as the 1 a.m. venue curfew was reached. And after an exciting and clearly worked match against Sulu Heavenpaw again, uh, but this time under catch rules, the Marvel faced off against Ed Strangler Lewis, who pinned the Marvel at the 12-minute mark. I can't speak to how this was booked or if it was legitimate. Either way, it made Lewis look like a million bucks and made the Marvel look human and sympathetic, where if it was a worked match, that's a brilliant way to do things. Oh yeah, that is what you're going for. It's elevating both guys, and now you, you've made a star with the masked... The masked wonder, the masked marvel. Who is he? It's it's mysterious. It's a new thing they haven't seen before, and he's he's taking everybody out. He's on this meteoric rise, and he gets cut down by the new black hat in town, the new villain. And having their matches only been draws, Aberg and Zabisco loudly called for rematches. But first, the masked marvel would get another shot at Lewis. This time around, it was the marvel chasing a defense of Lewis, and the match ended at 1 a.m. in a draw. And the media was eating this up, calling the masked Marvel the savior of the tournament, which had been eating shit at the box office up until he stormed into that crowd. And over the next few nights, he went back and forth with Zabisco and Aberg, all going to late night draws. I feel like that was uh, some bad booking there. You're trying to keep your top guy strong against yeah. the guy who's now the draw, but that can't be fun to watch too many times in the row. And in their final meeting, Aberg and the Masked Marvel faced off under Greco-Roman rules. Aberg, who had been previously built up as the prestigious sports hero, was scowling and cheap-shotting the Masked Marvel, and at the one-hour, 15-minute mark, Aberg applied a full Nelson and began to ragdoll the Marvel until the round ended. I'm sure it was as cartoonish as we're all picturing it to be. And I imagine he was also trying to get the mask off, like untie it in the back. That is beautiful. That's good shit, man. He's working. He got put in the heel position and he's owning it. He's scowling. It just shows the power of working with the story as opposed, you know, organic competition ends up in organic and binary situations that have no emotional context to the greater story. The Cinderella team will lose regardless of whether or not it is at the peak of the story that they are telling. And that's why works are always going to make more money than shoots because we can control the outcome, man. And they're seeing that here. This is a perfect example of that. What saved this prestigious tournament designed to reestablish legitimate competition the biggest worker of the bunch and after that ragdoll uh, nelson uh, move the next round got underway and the now shaken mass marvel had no defense for aberg who picked him up to shoulder height and slammed him to the mat so the marvel's shoulders touched the canvas and it was all over the crowd booed Aberg and shouted threats. The crowd favorite had been eliminated, and Aberg was now the favorite to win it, if not the hated favorite. The problem, again, is that nobody cared about 
watching this man. They only cared because he was being a heel against the masked Marvel. And I don't know if that was a situation where he was doing the heel shit because he was a legitimate competitor and hated this whole gimmick thing. It was just being a dick. Or if they were trying to establish him as being... Uh, a bit of a prick to try to build him up as a shit talker to draw Stetcher into a match. Once again, whether it was organic or whether it was planned, it did not work out very well for anyone involved. Because with the super babyface masked Marvel out of the tournament, the remainder might as well have happened on the moon. The press stopped covering it. The audience stopped showing up. Aberg was seen as a villain who was ducking the catch wrestlers like Roller and Lewis and was seen as a Greco-Roman old world snob. Rockman brought back the masked Marvel to wrestle Zabisco and Aberg in non-tournament draws, but the drama was dead and the magic was gone. The chance to replace Gotch with Aberg was a long shot to begin with, and now there was no chance at all. I think it's so interesting how... They've tried to establish this as a legitimate competitive tournament, and literally the thing that got the most over was the most gimmicky bullshit in the whole tournament. And who was this mass marvel? Who was it who showed up to save pro wrestling in the fall of 1915 under a black hood? Well, his name was Mort Henderson, a part-time wrestler and railroad detective from Atluna, Pennsylvania. He was a competent mid-card guy who was known in the Atlantic Northwest, but really, he was just a part-timer with no real future or ambitions until this weird opportunity came knocking. The Brooklyn Eagle exposed his identity on December 16, 1915, and the Marvel's manager claimed it was an outrageous lie, then accidentally gave it away a few weeks later by asking him, will you take a drink of water, Mort, in front of everyone mid-match like a real asshole? Nobody cared who Mort was until he put on the mask! So most sports pages had exposed his identity well before the final Aberg match, but people still had that suspension of disbelief. They wanted to see where this carnival was going, and they were in love with the drama of it all. And how did he get this spot? In the best way possible by being available, willing, and nearby on short notice. All of the big Greco-Roman stars were in the tournament, and most of the Midwest guys who were catch wrestlers were tied to Farmer Burns or other catch stars who wouldn't have gone along with it. Well, that is just being in the right place at the right time. Take notes, kiddies. It's why you do ring crew until you get booked. Yes, Chongo digresses. It's, you know, it's brilliant because here is this mid-card guy and he was elevated, and it showed the power of a gimmick, man. It really showed the ability to emotionally connect with the audience was so much more important than actually being the most skilled wrestler. Yes, because with the obvious worked angle that made everyone love the masked marble, it absolutely wrecked the remainder of the tournament and the reputation of the legitimate wrestlers involved. Many of their careers in America never recovered because they were seen as the straight man in a goofy fail tournament with a wrestling style nobody was really interested in to begin with that were blown out of the water perception-wise by a masked wrestler that just showed up in a crazy showbiz angle that, again, it, it drew tickets, it, it, it sold, uh, you know, sold the place out, but it also just completely sunk the ship that they were hoping to sail to, uh, you know, to world domination. And that is the only possible way they could follow up the original tournament's 
just bumbling of the finish of the entire thing and, and, and fail even more spectacularly with the fail of the second one. They actually got the interest built back up. They actually got the people invested and they shit the bed again. And while everybody, well, mostly everybody who was involved had their reputation tarnished, meanwhile, Mort Henderson temporarily became a star with the people coast to coast who had read about his matches in the papers were willing to pay the price of admission to see him in person, even though his identity and legitimacy were already exposed. He would show up as the masked marvel in California, in Texas, in Kansas. For a little while, he was hot. He was selling tickets. He probably made some decent money. And Sam Rockman's long-term goal completely dead at this point. His goal was to make Aberg the legitimate champion of the world, then act as his manager to make real money. Clearly that didn't go according to plan. Aberg was now seen as second rate in a style most people didn't care about. He was now tainted by worked matches, showbiz gimmicks, and was put in the position of once again trying to bait Gotch out of retirement with shit talking and promises of a huge payday. He offered $10,000 but it would have to be Greco-Roman rules for the first ball, catch for the second, and a coin toss for the third. Gotch and the public didn't have any interest. It's so funny. The, the entire result of this tournament, whose goal was to reestablish the dominance of Greco and the legitimacy of wrestling, ended up the biggest thing to come out of it was the masked worker getting over. And that's just... That's so hilarious because it just shows that sometimes the best laid plans, old chap. And once it was once the dust had settled, uh, Aberg and Lurich left the country in frustration, as we covered in the previous series of episodes. Rajman most likely returned to Europe since it's impossible to find any further info on him after this. Maybe he got blown up in World War One. Maybe he changed his name. Maybe he was a ghost this whole time. Who can say? But he just kind of vanishes after all of this. You know, Jack Curley, he continued to be a major player in wrestling for decades to come, and Joe Stetcher and Ed Lewis were on the doorstep of revolutionizing the pro wrestling industry. So it was this perfect moment that kind of, you know, just, just it's, it's everything that wrestling was at the time. It was the death of the old, the attempt to re-legitimize in the face of entertainment wrestling. It was the, 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 the young, uh, you know, punk rock kids who were the catch wrestlers uh, trying to be, you know, shown up by the, uh, the, the old school Greco-Roman guys. Totally. It was trying to be a legitimate sport when a legitimate sport didn't work, couldn't work, and wasn't entertaining. It was trying to use the showbiz gimmicks to try to make the rest of it seem more important and failing utterly. It is just madness on every level, and I love it. Yes, and it's just the perfect outcome because it, in an attempt to legitimize and reestablish pro wrestling and Greco at the top of the food chain, it essentially ushered in the new era where where working pro wrestling is king in the United States. It was attempting to create the throwback style as the premier style of pro wrestling, but in the end, all they did was prove everyone else right. Yep, pretty much that's exactly what happens when stubborn, old, archaic belief systems get pressed by the new reality, man, and that's what's beautiful, and that's why life imitates art, and art imitates life, and there's so many real-life lessons that apply today that we learn from these stories, man. And this is just, again, it's just such a wonderful moment in pro wrestling, that, that moment when 
things were just changing so fast, new stars were coming up, old stars were fading, and there were just these bridge characters like Aberg and Lurch and the Zabisco brothers who, you know, they like if they had been born 20 years earlier, they would have been huge stars in their field, but now they almost felt like throwback dinosaurs for a style no one cared about outside of you know, kind of the freak show style of matches or, you know, some places in Europe in their home countries where they were still seen as heroes. But the business was changing and it would continue to change in big ways over the next 10 years. And that's what we're going to be exploring over the next few episodes, because there was a lot of crazy things going on, a lot of crazy people getting involved in the business. And we're going to be talking about that for some time. Are you excited about that? Oh yeah, man, because this is when the shift happens where there's no looking back. We've gone full full work mode with the pro the cat is out of the bag and now that that is the evolution of what can be accomplished in a working mindset and a booking mindset with worked outcomes. Now we're gonna see the evolution of the business to start resembling what we know today. And that's, it's very fascinating and very cool, man. So for the time being, I'm glad you, you've been here for this episode. I'm glad you uh, follow us on this journey. Speaking of following us, make sure you, you follow us on Twitter and like us on Facebook and check out our, our Instagram. I, I found some cool photos from this era that I think you're going to like. Uh, but for now, we're calling it a day with that story told. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We'll talk to you next time. Yes, this has been the Hippodrome Express. Cut Prince Martini, but not while driving.